Would you pray with me for, um, for mercy for us? As you look at the title of the sermon, that is not a personal testimony, I trust. But um, it's an important word, uh, I think a, a weighty word for us today. So let's pray and ask God for mercy and grace. Lord, thank you for your, um, your word, that while we sitting here are like the grass, uh, we will fade away. Your word will abide forever. So, Father, I pray that your word would have its perfect result in our lives, bringing about conviction, encouragement, strengthening, greater conformity to Christ for those who are fighting you, resisting. Father, I pray that you would gently lead them to see your glory and your greatness. For those of us who are clinging to things uh, that are destroying us and our faith, Father, I pray that you would give us grace to believe that you're greater than that which we love, the things of this world. Father, help us to be the church that might display the manifold wisdom to the nations and to the heavens, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, ironies can be very instructive for us. And uh, back in 1994, there was a boat called the uh, Columbus Island. And uh, this, boat was doing, um, this boat was doing environmental research, trying to collect data and samples. And they were really trying to find out um, the purpose was to try to discern how best to handle oil spills in the ocean. And uh, while out doing research, it ran aground and dumped 200 gallons of diesel fuel in the ocean. And, uh, and then as they tried to pull the boat off from the shore that they ran aground, uh, they kicked up a plume of sand, which was then began destroying the coral reefs that they were investigating. And uh, so here a boat goes out to do research to help in the prevention and the, and the fixing of oil spills, and they end up creating one. Well, you know, today it's somewhat analogous to that in the sense that uh, leaders of the church are for your benefit, they're for your good. And yet oftentimes it's the very leadership that is, that is postured by God to help the church, it ends up actually harming, and in some cases even destroying the church. In fact, our passage, God is condemning the leaders of Israel in, in, in very graphic terms. And, uh, but thankfully, tucked in the text, there is an example of a faithful messenger that, that where he condemns the false leaders, he will commend the faithful leader. And... Um, and that's what we're going to find today. Now, now, when you hear me say that the text is primarily about leaders, I know that most of you perhaps feel this collective sigh of relief. Wow. That's, it's like when my dad would come into the house, and he had that face that was clear. He's saying, there will be punishment distributed. You knew it. And he started with, where's Mark? That was my older brother. And as long as Tom did not follow that, I felt this is going to be okay. We'll get through this. And uh, I don't want you to feel that way. Um, Although it is primarily about leaders, I think it's very instructive for the people of God that you would better approve, that you would better appreciate and apprehend what godly leadership is. 
It's important for you to know that. All of the leaders you have are going to die. They're going to be replaced and removed at one point in time. And you need to know what is a godly leader. What is a faithful leader that God will commend as opposed to a great guy, perhaps, that God may condemn? Very, very important. So turn with me, turn with me if you will, to Malachi chapter 2. We'll read the first nine verses. Malachi chapter 2, 1 to 9. And if you remember, the book is centered around really six disputes that God has with his people. And this is the second part of the second dispute. So he says, and now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So the first thing we're going to see is these miserable messengers, these failed leaders. They failed God. This leadership failed God. And they failed him on a number of different issues. Number one, they failed him in not bringing honor to his name, not bringing honor to God in worship. You see it kind of zero in. God's zeroing in on the leaders here by saying, and now, O priest, this command is for you. See, the priests of Israel were a gift of God to steward worship. And what they were to do is they were to lead the people to God through sacrifice and through intercession of prayer and through instruction of the word. They were to lead the people to help see the greatness of God, and they failed at this. The covenant was that they would mediate God to the people and bring the people to God, and they didn't do this. And so God warns them. He says here, and and the implication is that he had been warning them in Jeremiah and and Hosea, throughout the prophets, he says, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, then I'll send the curse upon you. In other words, covenants have stipulations. If you meet the stipulations, there are blessings. If you ignore the stipulations, there are curses. And the implication is that they had ignored them because it, it says, indeed, I've already cursed you because you did not lay it to heart. The, the, the very hearts of the leaders weren't looking to honor God. Now, what does it mean to not honor the name? Well, remember what the name is. The name is just an expression for the comprehensive nature of God. So when we think about the Lord of hosts, I explained how that is. He's the Lord of all the heavenly armies. He's the Lord of all the heavenly bodies. It's kind of a picture of God where he is high and lifted up and exalted. 
all of creation does his bidding. And these priests had not given honor to his name. To give honor is to ascribe worth, to see the unfathomable value of God, that they had treated him. You know, the word glory, actually, the Hebrew word just means heavy. So when we think about the glory of God, we're thinking about God being heavy laden with perfections. It's like I've explained before, it's like that fruit tree just hanging over with fruit. God's heavy laden with perfection. And they didn't see God that way. They didn't treat God as heavy, but they treated him as light. They were lighthearted with God. They were kind of ignorant. They were even irreverent with God. In other words, the way they were behaving, the offerings, as we saw two weeks ago, the blemish sacrifices and despising the table, what's that say about the worth of God? If that's the kind of gift you bring, what's it say about God? So let's say on, Carol and I just celebrated 25 years. Let's say that I had come home with a special new Hoover vacuum cleaner. (laughs) It would have said very little for the worth that she has All these years, faithfulness, love, just sharing life together. What does it say about her value to me when I I represent it with that kind of gift? Or if 9-11, this 10-year anniversary just last month, if you were to do something totally casual, irreverent, lighthearted, it would dishonor the memory of those that many valued that died in that tragedy. I mean, the, the, the way we dress, the way we act, we're always putting value on things. How do we value God? These priests were not valuing God. What does it say about the God of the universe when I'm going to say, well, I'm going to give him this unblemished lamb, if you remember in chapter 1, verse 14, and then he says, no, 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 I'm going to switch and give him a blemished lamb or give him roadkill. In fact, it's said that God chided the people because they gave animals that were taken by violence. In other words, it just came along a dead animal and said, okay, this will suffice to offer to God. They didn't honor God at all. But not only did they not honor God in worship, they didn't honor God with their life. You notice in verse 8, <clears throat> eight he begins to explain a little more detail of how these priests were so miserable. And he says here that you've turned aside from the way. In other words, God laid out the covenant for them. <clears throat> these priests were to walk in a manner worthy of God. They were to walk according to the commands. He says that you've turned your own way. You've done your own thing. You've despised the word of God. You're doing what you want in disregard to me. You've corrupted the sacrifice. He says you've corrupted the covenant. They were marrying foreign women. They were despising God in worship. By their very lives, they were not honoring God. Do you know that about your life? Do you know that the way you live, you're either honoring or dishonoring the one who gives you breath? They were dishonoring him by the choices you make, by the marriages you lead, by the way you do your job. You're honoring God. You're dishonoring God, one or the other. And they were dishonoring him, but they also were dishonoring him with their instruction. The priests were called to instruct the people. The people needed the instruction of the priests. And it says that they taught with partiality. It could mean a couple things, really. It could mean that they, they were favorable to the rich and the powerful, And they ignored the low and the uneducated. It could mean that. It could also mean that they were partial in terms of what they taught, what they wanted to to demand of people. Maybe they they softened the commands of God. Maybe they majored in minors and minored on majors. Maybe they only taught those things that benefited them. Either way, here's what we have. We have these miserable messengers, these failed leaders, 
They didn't honor God in their worship. They didn't honor God in their lives. And they didn't honor God in their instruction. And here's what God says. You're judged. God's going to bring judgment to that. He says, I rebuke you and your offerings. In other words, these were the Levitical priests. They had, God had designed the priesthood that they would receive blessings. They would eat part of the sacrifices given. They would also be the ones to give the blessing of God. And he says, I'm going to turn your blessings into wrath. In fact, what he says in graphic language is, I will spread dung on your face. Dung, that word, is actually uh, refers to the intestines and the contents of them. It was disgusting. It was unclean. That Those parts of the animal in a sacrifice were taken outside the camp. They were not to be in the camp because God so disliked them. And he says, I'm going to take that and spread it on your face. I will humiliate you in how you have humiliated me. And I will remove you. I mean, that is significant language. For God to say, I'll spread dung on your face. We've got to wake ourselves up to this. I mean, I kept reading that and reading that. I said, what does that mean? It means that he's going to make them unclean. They're unfit to lead. <clears throat> they will be removed. I mean, that is graphic. Perhaps some of you think, well, that's way over the top. He had warned him and warned him and warned him and finally said, that's it. Do you think it's over the top? Do you think that God should be so graphic and so harsh with failed leadership? Yeah, I do want you to consider the role of these priests. These priests were were supposed to hold up the fame of God and his glory. They were supposed to lead a people to see that fame and the glory and to show how great God is. Well, God won't have his name trashed. God will not remain defamed. God will defend his name, and incidentally, he'll protect his people from failed leadership. You know, the two go together, God's glory being pronounced properly, and the people's joy and satisfaction in God. They do go together. I want you to understand the absolute eternal danger of failed leadership. Miserable messengers that... Don't just live improperly, but particularly instruct improperly. You know, we've all been exposed to the leaders who have fallen sexually or financially, and that does great harm on the church. But when failed leadership misses the mark in instruction, that sows the seeds of destruction for generations, not just one. You know, can you imagine? I hear a general is given responsibility for 5,000 men and he's incompetent. I mean, I mean, there's tremendous danger with incompetent leadership. So God judges them. Now, I know some of you here um, have experienced this. I mean, you have seen leaders that have failed. Uh, they've failed at leading in worship. I know some of you have seen moral failures. You have seen financial failures. Some of you have seen failures in terms of instruction. You know, I know a number of people have come up to me within just the last six months and said, we've never heard some of these things. In fact, there was even a a tinge of sorrow and sadness, even resentment that, why didn't I hear this before? And I don't even know what the topics were on, but something that had been preached. And I would simply say this, that 
that are, especially for those who are non-Christian, who have often looked at failed leadership as a reason for being non-Christian. I would just simply say this to you, that God hates failed leadership. God will judge failed leadership. And I would ask you to not deny considering the glory of God because of failed and foolish leadership. We see this turn, you know, so we're left with this text. You read it with me. You heard me address it. I don't think I've taken it out of context. He is condemning failed leadership. So what do we do as a New Testament church here? For those of you who are Christian here, how do we read something like this? We don't have priests in the New Testament, right? The New Testament does not promote the priesthood of Levi. Why? Where are the priests in the New Testament? Well, there are none. Well, actually, there is. There's one. There's Jesus Christ kind of as the high priest, right? So in other words, if you remember in Matthew 21, Jesus coming to the end of his ministry is being rejected. He just cleanses the temple, the failed leadership again, because the temple, which was a a place of prayer, had been turned into a marketplace. And Jesus then curses a fig tree. Fig tree is always a stock symbol for Israel, often Israel's leadership. And so after coming through the temple, he realizes this is what Israel's leadership has produced. And then he comes right out, the next paragraph, and he curses the fig tree, it withers and dies. It's a sign of judgment on the priesthood. There will be no more priesthood. Why? Because Christ is the high priest. That Christ now is going to do for the people of God what the priest never did. He would be a perfect sacrifice. He would be a perfect intercessor. He would be a perfect teacher of the law. In fact, in Hebrews, it gives wonderful word to it. It says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So where the priests had to offer sacrifices year after year after year, the gospel is about Christ offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. Thereby, there is no more priesthood. Now, there is no, there is no one needed. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. So now, for the New Testament Christian, we don't look for a priesthood. We look to Christ, and Christ is the one that leads us to the Father, that we can enjoy God, we can fellowship with God, we can receive the forgiveness of God, we can receive, enjoy adoption into God's family, all through faith in Christ. That now Christ is our high priest. Therefore, there is no need for a priesthood. In fact, if you were to just go to the next chapter in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, he says, Brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that has been opened for us through the curtain, that is, his flesh. You can put cross there. And since we have great High priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you know the hope that this affords us? That no more do we need priests because we have a perfect high priest in Christ, that we can draw near, that we can fellowship with God, that you don't have to carry around the debt of your sin anymore because you have been washed clean through faith in what Christ has done, offering himself, that's the gospel. Christ offering himself for us. The priests were just a picture pointing. They were just a shadow of the reality that was to come. 
It's very, very hopeful. So you say, okay, great, we have no priest. I know many of you are thinking, well, hold it now. What about in Second Peter or First Peter chapter 2? Aren't we a priesthood? Well, it, yes, we are. In fact, the scripture says we're a priesthood, but we're not a priesthood in the way that this Levitical priesthood. Jesus is the culmination of that. And now with Jesus as a high priest, we can now serve our God. But making us priests doesn't deny the reality that in the New Testament there are still leaders. Right in Ephesians chapter 4, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave gifts to the church, gifts of pastors and teachers, elders. Elders are to labor at preaching and teaching. So Jesus Christ in his church has still established a leadership. And that's why Malachi 2 is still relevant for us. Because in Malachi 2, particularly in 5 through 7, God's going to hold up this faithful minister. And he's going to say, this is godly leadership. So look with me, if you will. Because these priests that, that now kind of culminate in Christ, who's the high priest, and now the leaders... Us as leaders, we won't be sacrificing for you because Christ has been sacrificed, but we are to continue instructing you. Look with me in verse 5. He says, My covenant with him, that is Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now listen, there's just a few things that I want to highlight about. So we've talked about miserable messengers. You know, they didn't honor God in worship, they did not honor God in their life, and they did not honor God in their instruction. Okay, so let's look at some faithful messengers. A faithful messenger. Uh, First would be one who stands in fear of God. Clearly, you saw that here, where it's a covenant of fear. Here, Levi has been held up as an example. He enjoyed this covenant that produced life and peace as he walked in fear. In fact, God calls it a covenant of fear. He stood in awe of my name. Folks, the first quality of any godly minister is one that fears. And what I mean by fear is not devoid of love. Fear is a recognition of the stature and the grandeur of God. To fear God is to reverence God. It's to honor God. It's to understand how colossally large and glorious he is and who we are in comparison. To fear God as a a leader is never to fear the people. You love the people. You serve the people. You don't fear the people. You don't seek to advance your name among the people. Uh, the, The godly leader seeks to advance God's name among the people because he's in fear of God. He understands. It's like that Isaiah, when Isaiah sees the holiness of God and he sees the angels kind of in this back and forth rhythm of saying, holy, holy, holy. What does Isaiah say? Great to finally see you. No, it says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's a man who fears his destruction because the holiness of God is so great. That's the man you want to lead you. A man who truly fears God. Now, as New Testament Christians, we fear God, we fear Christ. You know, when, when, you, when you think of the gospel, God pouring out wrath upon the Son, that is a fear-producing event, that God would judge sin so mightily. We overlook sin. We categorize it. We have some pet sins that we can deal with. Some sins are big, some sins are small, but in the end, they're all going to be okay. 
But look for a moment at how God judges sin on the cross. It's significant. We should actually also be in fear of his mercy. Have you ever seen mercy exhibited by God giving the Son to bear our sins? I mean, have you ever sacrificed yourself in any way that could even bring to you to a point of understanding that in greater measure? That, that mercy given like that is actually, it's fearful to me. You know, we have a culture that we love humor. I like humor. I like to laugh. But, but we've elevated humor to being essential for a leader. You know, I was reading an editorial in CT, and they referenced Flannery O'Connor. She was a Southern novelist here in the mid-20th century. And she was speaking about the, the slippery slope that we're on with humor, and she said she compared the sentimentality, this softness of love uh, that is kind of slipping into the Christian faith. She said sentimentality uh, is to the Christian faith what pornography is to love. It, it's a misuse of it. He go, she said this, she said, how can we fear God when Jesus is our pal? You know, when, when we kind of bring him down, when we, when we lose a fear, of, of, you know, when we make Jesus my buddy, what does that do to the fear of God? It, it, it diminishes it, it decreases it. And I think much in culture, the ministers that are just snappy funny, they're, they're relevant, they're cutting edge, that, that is what we were drawn to. I would encourage you that the people of God will look for, for leaders who fear God, who are overwhelmed with his presence, who are burdened by his glory in such measure they want you to be burdened by his glory. They want you overwhelmed with God. They don't want to make him so relevant that it makes him irrelevant to who he really is. First thing is to fear God. Do we fear God? Do your leaders fear God? Are you looking for them? Are you praying for them to fear God? Secondly, would be ministers that don't just stand in fear of God, but they also speak the words of God. If you notice in verse 7, it says, true instruction was on his, in his mouth, and there was no wrong on his lips. That They're speaking forth the word of God. They're not diluting it. They're not adjusting it. That the, that the preacher, that the elders aren't managing it, subtracting it. The godly messenger knows that's what he is, just a messenger. He's just bringing a message that has been given to him by God. There's no innovation. There's no creation to it. There's no spins we have to do to it. It's just speaking forth the words of God, desiring for you to be instructed in the things of God that your affections might grow for God. That's a godly leader. A godly leader feels confident that God's word is able to carry its own weight. You know, Jerome, church father of the 4th century, when asked about trying to defend the word of God, he said, defend the word of God? He said, I'd rather defend a lion. The word of God's okay on its own. And you need leaders that trust in the power of God's word to do the work in the heart. You don't need me persuading you and manipulating you and trying to bring in tear-producing stories. The word of God just goes out and will do the work that God wants it to do. It's his word. It won't return empty. Won't return void. Loved what uh, Andrew Bonar had written uh, in the mid-19th century uh, about the type of minister that would often see God used to awaken people. Here's what he writes. He says, They felt their infinite responsibility as stewards of the mysteries of God 
and shepherds appointed by the chief shepherd to gather in and watch over souls. They lived and labored and preached like men on whose lips the immortality of thousands hung. Everything they did and spoke bore the stamp of earnestness and proclaimed to all with whom they came into contact that the matters about which they had been sent were of infinite moment. Their preaching seems to have been of the most masculine and fearless kind, falling on the audience with tremendous power. It was not vehement, it was not fierce, it was not noisy, it was far too solemn to such. It was massive, it was weighty, cutting, piercing, sharper than any two-edged sword. I mean, that's the leader you want. One that is trusting in the word of God like that, that is preaching the word of God. That's why we try to exposit scripture here. What I mean by expositional preaching is simply this, that the meaning in the text is the meaning of the sermon. You don't always see that. That there may be points to sermon and various scriptures are used to advance that point. But the meaning of the text is the meaning of the sermon. That's why we, we do involve doctrinal preaching here. And many people will look at doctrinal preaching and they say, that divides. You know, they say, just give me Jesus. And I say, well, what Jesus do you want? I mean, the Jesus in Scripture preached doctrine. Uh, complex, perplexing, very uncomfortable doctrine that we do not want to avoid here. You say, yeah, but you know, you get into doctrine and you're irrelevant and people come in, the, the seeker, they don't know what you're talking about, they feel like they're out of place. Well, in a way, of course they do. Yeah, you know, I love what William Willimont said. He used to be the, the dean of the Duke Chapel. He kind of went through, if anybody is a Methodist minister actually, but he, uh, he kind of went through a metamorphosis of faith used to be all for taking the gospel and applying it and trying to relate it to culture. Here's what he writes a few years back. He says, at one time I would have agreed this was the role, the primary purpose of preaching to relate the gospel to contemporary culture. He says, um, but now I believe it's a weakness, that seeker-sensitive model. He says, our time as preachers is, is better spent enculturating modern late-century Americans into the culture called church. When I walk into a class on introductory physics, I don't expect to understand immediately most of the vocabulary, terminology, and concepts. He goes, this is why the concept of user-friendly churches often leads to churches getting used. There's no way I can crank the gospel down to the level where any American can walk in off the street and know what it's all about in 15 minutes. One can't do that with baseball. The other day, someone emerged from Duke Chapel after my sermon and said, I've never heard anything like that. Where on earth did you get it? He said, where on earth would you have heard that before? After all, pagan, uninformed, university environment, where would you hear this? In the philosophy department, watching Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? No, to hear this, you've got to get dressed and come down here on Sunday morning. He says, it's a strange assumption for Americans to feel that they, can, they already, this is very important, it is a strange assumption for Americans to feel they already have the equipment necessary to comprehend the gospel without any modification of lifestyle, without any struggle, in short, without being born again. The point is not to speak to the culture. The point is to change it. And God's appointed means of producing change is called the church. And God's typical way of producing the church is called preaching. So that's what we want to have in a godly minister. Trusting in the word of God as it's exposited, as doctrine is drawn out. Of course people are going to walk in here and say, but I didn't fully understand what the preacher was talking about. It's no problem. Explain it to them. Make the connections. Help them connect it. But we're talking about things of God. 
that people are drinking deeply 24-7 out of the world, they're not going to get this stuff. But that doesn't mean we don't preach it. Remember, the call of the pastor and the teacher is to equip the body to do the work of ministry. This is primarily a feeding time for you. But not only, not only do you want your leaders in fear of God, not only do you want them speaking the words of God, you want them living a life for the glory of God. Now these ministers, when, when God holds up Levi as an example, he says, um, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. I mean, that is a beautiful expression of godliness. He walked with me. You know, when you walk with somebody, you know, you, you begin, when you walk with them long enough, you begin to pick up their characteristics. You sound like them. You, you use their expressions. You, you have the same facial expressions. You begin to adopt what they're like. And you can tell when a person has walked with God. A, a good godly leader, a faithful leader, is inspecting his life. He, he's, he's bringing it to the word of God. He's, a godly leader is not a perfect leader. But he's a leader that when sin is identified, that he's repenting, he's confessing. This is why I regularly ask the kids, what inconsistencies do you see in me? I mean, do you see me different in the pulpit than in the home, in the way I treat your mother? And if you do, you're doing me no favor by being silent. That we want to live godly lives, not perfect lives, but lives that are marked by the Spirit of God, applying the word to our souls, repenting of our sins. I think about Robert Mary McShane, who's a great Scottish pastor, 19th century. He says, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. That's true. Matthew Henry, century before, writes, nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to honor it. There's a call. The godly minister has got to live a godly life. And you need to be aware of that. Leaders need to be pursuing it confessing sin, repenting, not trying to put on airs, not trying to show that we've got it all together when we're crumbling right behind the curtain. That's a godly minister. That's what you're looking for. That's what you're praying for. We are not perfect men, for sure. But maturity is marked by knowing where the imperfections are, confessing, seeking God for grace, exercising faith to believe that he'll lead us to greater godliness. And then the fourth, the last feature of a godly minister in the text is that they see the fruit of God. So they stand in fear of God. And if you stand in fear of God, you're going to treat his word with respect. And in fact, in Isaiah 66, God says, this is the one I look to, the one who's humble and contrite and the one who trembles at my word. Do we tremble at his word? People, do you tremble at his word? Do you read it and do you hear God speaking to you and draw your life in line with it. So the one who fears God is going to speak his word, and the one who speaks his word is going to live his word. And then the one who lives his word is going to see the fruit of God. Now, seeing the fruit of God, you'll see this here in verse 7. He says, he walked in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. And that's part of the role of godly leadership. Godly leadership is preaching and living and admonishing, rebuking, encouraging, so that the lives of the people under their lead are turning from iniquity. 
that you're changing, you're being sanctified. Some are being drawn from darkness to light. Most are being changed from glory to glory. There's that sanctifying influence that ought to be taking place in your life. That when you hear the word of God, you're beginning to confront, you look at your life and say, where am, where am I out of line with the word and how can I move to be in line with the word? So for example, as we go through Malachi next week, we're going to look at marriage. So I'm going to ask you to look at your marriage. And if your marriage, if men, if you're not leading sacrificially as servants, displaying Christ, then you hear the word, you get in line. You repent to your wife and you begin moving. You seek a brother, you pray, you begin moving in that. Ladies, the same thing, responding, respecting. Or a few weeks after that, we'll talk about money. I won't tell you when. But we'll be talking about money. And, and, and if you're tight-fisted, if you're hoarding, if you say, well, you know what? I, I know enough about that already. I'm not going to listen to that. that that's, that's not what it's all about. You hear the word, and fruit is born as you respond and obey the word. So, so those are the four characteristics that I would have you consider. That, that the leader ought to stand in fear of God. He speaks the word of God that he is um, living for the glory of God, and that he is seeing, and you are seeing, the fruit of God through that ministry. Now, here's where it comes back to you. And well, let, let me sum that up real quick with First uh, Timothy, because we see the same instruction that Paul gives to Timothy. He says, keep watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Salvation is tied up in what I'm saying. Your salvation, my salvation, is tied up in what I'm saying. I'm not saying that our salvation is teetering. Our salvation is grounded on the righteousness of Christ. But those participating in that righteousness are going to persist in this. And it isn't that it's just going to be happening like God's going to be pulling you along. No, 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 you're working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, as it is God who is at work in you. So the leaders... We are pursuing this. We're looking at our lives. We're looking at our doctrine. Because in that is the salvation of ourselves in this church. The betterment of this church is tied into godly, godly leadership. Now, this is where it goes to you. Because you're now essential in this. The, the, the clear instruction to you as a people of God is that you're called to seek instruction. You see that right there at the... Uh, in verse 7, it says, And the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The weight on me when I read that, and the weight on you should be profound. That you should seek instruction. That it is incumbent upon you that you are humbling yourself as you come to this church. You're not coming with defenses and walls, and you know what, I'm going to see where I agree with the guy. You're not coming, well, I got my life in order, but Bill, he needs to hear that. You can't believe how many wives have told me their husband needed to hear that last message. That you're seeking instruction, you're coming hungry. What does this messenger? It doesn't mean the messenger is smarter than you. Half of you guys are probably smarter than me. It doesn't mean that you know more. It simply means that God has so ordained even with a fallible preacher, to bring forth a message of truth that is beneficial for your soul. And so it requires humility. It requires that you come. You're listening. You're putting your life underneath the lens of the word and you're adjusting to it. As I said before, many people I know come, well, they come and they like it when I advance what they already believe. Folks, that's not seeking instruction. I, I, I know that people have told me, well, 
I hold a different doctrine than you on this one point. And I thought, well, that may be true, but that doesn't mean you have to leave. It doesn't also mean that you have to maintain holding your point. Could you dialogue? Should we, should we enter into a dialogue as to seek God's spirit to lead us to an understanding of this text? Some people, as soon as they don't agree, they just say, well, that's it. But it says you ought to seek instruction. So that requires you to humble yourselves under the word. But not just do you seek instruction, I would also encourage you uh, to expect this behavior of your leaders. You are right to expect your leaders to be godly. And when they're not, I would expect you to say something discreetly, appropriately to the people involved. Particularly when we advance the name of a new elder, will you Hold this criteria. Are they in fear of God? Do they speak the words of God to me? Do they have a life, as far as you can tell, live for the glory of God? Do you see fruit of God out of their lives? Those are the markers. I would also ask you not just to seek instruction and to expect this from your leadership. I'd ask you to pray. I I just gave you four points of prayer that you can lift up for all your elders. God, help them to fear you. Open their eyes to your greatness. You know, pray that they would speak the words of God with boldness. And the last thing you want is some doctor saying, well, I think you're going to be okay, when you've got a terminal issue. You want them to speak the truth to you. So pray. And I would also say appreciate. You know, the, the men that lead you all have full-time jobs. They all work diligently. And they are striving with many, many hours for your benefit. And I would say appreciate them. Be thankful. Express words of thankfulness to them. So you know, we have this great text, God chiding the people of Israel. God isn't just taking lumps out on Israel. God wants his people to reflect his glory. And so this book of Malachi, there are these six disputes that he has. And as we go through each one, we want to adjust ourselves so that we might display the glory of God as we adjust ourselves to the word. And so today was clearly, we want to walk as faithful messengers. I ask you to pray for us in that. I ask you to hold us accountable to that. I ask you to respond to us as we seek to lead you. I ask you to come seeking instruction. Not that we know everything, but God has appointed messengers to declare the word that your lives will be reflective and changing as the word's broken for you. So let me pray for us. I'll start. And uh, uh, one of the elders will come up and close. Ray will close for us in prayer. But I would ask you, this is our season. This is just a brief time. We have... We have minutes here. What, I, what we want to do, and I'm always trying to set the table for you, is that we're just responding briefly, loudly. We're responding to the word. So it may be thankfulness. It may be confession. It may be seeking God's grace on a certain issue. But what we're doing is now we're practicing what we will do in glory. And it will be just speaking to God. So I'll start and then Ray will close us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us in Christ. Thank you that he is our high priest and we can 
come right now with boldness through the curtain that is his flesh, having our hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience. Father, we need that. Father, thank you for this word. I thank you for the elders that you have raised up in this church. Father, I thank you that while they're not perfect, they do seek your face for these people. Father, would you, would you develop us into greater leaders, better leaders, more holy leaders, that we might lead your people in greater ways, that, these, that the people of God that you have given to us here, that they would rejoice over the leaders that you appointed for them. Thank you, Father.